0: it's flexibility. (laughs) Um, I'm like, can I say hi first? Because I'm reading the scripture actually, but I I just couldn't miss this opportunity to say, oh my word, how beautiful it is to see all your faces in person. And um, we're still struggling with masks and all the realities, but just so special that we could be together today. And I can't tell you how much it means to Chris and I but I know all of us just to be able to see your faces so thank you for being here I think we need a little shout out for Gabby and Ryan who are our newest married couple August what? August 9th they got married so they have moved back here and they would love to live closer this side so anybody knows a cheap apartment they're keen (laughs) Welcome. So wonderful to have you all here. We're going to read from Galatians 1 from verse 10. And this is Paul who is writing to the Galatians church. He says, Am I now now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ i want you to know brothers that the gospel i preached is not something that man made up i did not receive it from any man nor was i taught it rather i received it by revelation from jesus christ for you have heard of my previous way of life in judaism how intensely i persecuted the church of god and tried to destroy it i was advancing in judaism beyond many jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, don't you love that sentence? But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia, and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am writing, what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This man, Paul, who had persecuted Christians and killed them. But God... But when God came, changed this man to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: All right, so normally at this point in time, we go around hugging each other. So this is the rule. You're allowed to hug someone in your circle. If we suspect you hug someone outside of your circle, well done. (laughs) Give someone a hug in your circle and then find your little spot. Great to see all of you. Welcome this morning. Thanks, Ty. And everyone else? All right, welcome everyone. My name is Chris for those of you who don't know. Nice to see some new faces here. Um, some old faces back. I do have a few thanks before we dive into this morning's story. Um, and uh, the first is really just to say a huge shout out and thanks to Josh at the back there. He's acting like he's our car guard, but actually he's the guy that enabled us to meet you so josh we so appreciate you and canopy just making this parking lot available to us we are super super stoked and super super grateful i also want to thank um you ryan and rachel they have been part of this community for many years and then meryl and i had the privilege of doing their wedding how long ago was that two years ago one year okay and uh, they have moved up to pasadena I prayed for years for God to send us a trumpeter and a saxophonist. They joined the church, then decided it's time to move. So I hate them. Just officially, we just want to make that clear. It's great to see you. Thanks for driving up from Pasadena. And then um, my good friend, the 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 Sting version of I'm an Englishman in San Diego. Jonathan, I'm so glad you guys drove up. You and two of your kiddos. Wonderful for you to drive up here and uh, spend a morning with us. I am. Very, very stoked with that. All three, yeah, absolutely. And then um, there was someone else, let me not. Carissa, coming up from your Belinda, I mean, coming down, coming somehow with your two kiddos. Carissa was with us at Southlands when we led there many, many years ago, and it's super cool to have you drive down. And then can I just say welcome to the Biola and the Vanguard newbies. Um, You are probably, if you are new to Southern California, adjusting to about everything. Because there's very little that's normal here and we quite like the disnormal that's a good word I think it should be in the Oxford Dictionary do you know the Oxford Dictionary has a new best word every year a word that fits in based on what's happened during the course of the year and I'm going to suggest the disnormal should be one of those words I'd like a few votes please I'd like a few loves and uh, okay so what are we gonna do this morning This was and is a little bit of an experiment for us to see, does this fit into the rhythms of our culture? Is this who we are during this time of COVID and its normalcy, which doesn't appear like it's going away anytime soon? And uh, I must just say, well done to the interns who came early and drew circles of confusion. And to the band who always arrive early and leave late. Um, But we are in the middle of a series called Who Are We? and we thought it would be a great way to start the fall just stepping into that conversation and thus far we've spoken about the gospel because that's our message we spoke last week about the text and I can't tell you what a joy it is to see all of your faces like Tyler I am sick and tired of preaching to an iPhone I love this I love the interaction I love the family I love the humor I love the banter I love the abuse I'm always looking for someone to abuse on any given occasion and it may be yours today But um, this morning, we're going to talk about the story because, as you know, our commitment is to a four-part anchor. We use what we call a sea anchor, which doesn't mean you are anchored and immovable. It means you are anchored as you move. You stay on course no matter the winds or the currents or the the, um, different eddy flows. And uh, I am particularly delighted to invite a friend to come and Have a conversation with me if I can dismantle this. Maria, please come up here. All right, I'm going to tell you who Maria is. Um, How how long ago did we meet? About a year ago, year and a half maybe?
2: Yeah, uh, or so. We met first in September here and then in Dubai in the fall.
1: Okay. So, why is Maria one of the most important people in the world? Well...
2: No pressure.
1: <laughs> she, she is about to tell you her story and why she is here and why she is not elsewhere. Maria really is delightful. I, I really have a great affection. The more I get to know her, the more my love for her and my admiration for her and her courage grows. So start off a little bit. Tell us a little bit of your history. You're Mexican-American, but why has that shaped you so profoundly?
2: Hi everyone it's nice to meet you um first off it's just like a huge honor to be here with you guys today i actually before i met chris and Merrill or sam or tyler and Haley, i found you guys on instagram and i like saw, go sam uh, yeah i like saw that you were eating meals together which is like huge like heart for me i love family and kitchen table and i was like these guys are doing it on like as a church like it's the most amazing thing ever so when Rachel, who some of you have met, came and was like, "Do you know Genesis?" I was like, "Do I know Genesis?" <laughs> like I'm like fangirling over Instagram. Um, so it's just like really cool to see how God has like kind of brought this full circle. But yeah, so my mom immigrated to America when she was 16. She's actually pregnant um, with a young, uh, younger older sister of mine, and she basically raised four kids on her own. We grew up in Washington State. Um, Kind of fathers weren't really a part of my life, but I kind of thought that was normal to not have a dad. I mean, in Hispanic culture, I think we get used to that. We get used to um, dads getting married out of wedlock or having, sorry, yeah, yeah, having children out of wedlock. And it's kind of like our normal, like in our subculture, like Latin culture. Not everyone, of course, but for most of my experience. And so when the Lord came into my life, um, it transformed me not only because God was, a father, but he was like a good one. You know what I mean? And he like really cared for me, and that really shaped who I become. And then when I was 16, um, I was kind of like adopted, not legally, by an American family, and kind of entered into like this whole new cur- culture. Like we lived in a town called Enumclaw, which was like kind of like small town redneck, but we had like this small pocket of Mexicans that like lived there, and when I was adopted by my American family, it felt like I was entering into this whole new world, guys. Like, the fact that like, you act uh, like America I shouldn't say you, but like Americans actually do do the whole like wake up early on like Christmas Day and like have stockings. I thought that was just like a Hallmark movie thing. <laughs> and then you know, because in growing up like Mexican, we like stay up all night, and then at midnight on Christmas Eve we like open our gifts, and then Christmas Day is just kind of like okay, cool, you know. <laughs> so that's a little bit about my story, a little bit about how I've kind of been formed by a lot of cultures and really been. I've been a curious person since the beginning. So when I came to know Jesus, I called up the youth pastor, uh, cause I found the, I like Googled church. And luckily I always say, the Mormon church was like a little bit this way and the other church was this way. <laughs> so I really got blessed. Um,
1: so tell us a little bit about your conversion. I mean, How did that happen?
2: Uh, yeah, so I Googled church. Cause I just, now I really do like, don't hesitate to really just say that it was like God pursued me first. Um, he really did. And all I knew was I didn't want to go to the Catholic church because it was in Latin, I'm pretty sure. And we had gone a couple times and I didn't really understand. I mean, Jesus, I mean, everyone is named Jesus and my name's Maria and my mom's name is Mary also. And so you like have that cultural instinction of the gospel. But um, when I started to go to like uh, this Christian church, like Presbyterian church, um, I called and I was like, Do you have to pay to get in? Like, do your parents have to be Christians? Like, am I allowed to come? And they were like, yes, please come. So I show up, um, and I was young, I was was probably 15. And I just remember that they loved me. Like, they loved me. They remembered when I didn't come. (laughs) They, like, asked how I was. They actually genuinely cared about me. And they allowed space for me to ask all my really What were kind of like dumb questions probably to a lot of them that had grown up in the christian kind of world so they really like pursued my heart in love and in just recognition and being like you matter and leading me to jesus day by day until one day i like was sobbing in a corner going okay i'm in and then i got baptized and yeah didn't look back since then
1: maria you have a heart for the nations so tell us a little bit of how that happened and i know you can't be specific because it is being recorded But uh, tell us a little bit of what you feel God has done in your heart for a particular part of the world.
2: Yeah, so um, you want the short version, the medium version? (laughs) Uh,
1: Give us just a few moments. I'm I'm aware that the sun's going to bake us.
2: Yes, um, so after I had been a Christian for about a year, um, the youth pastor said something like, um, there's even more to Jesus than I could tell you, but I'm not sure how to do that. And so in my curiosity, I said, well, who can tell me, (laughs) you know? So I did what you do. I signed up for a short-term mission trip, and I went to Panama for two months, and that was the first time I had heard about the Holy Spirit. I saw a blind lady healed. I heard about unreached people groups, which if you don't know what that is, it's like a region in the world where there's like no Christians, and the likeliness of someone hearing the gospel is very, very low. And I started researching and researching and thought I'd move to Nepal, translate the Bible with Wycliffe thought what's the most where's like somewhere that like nobody's gonna go like okay like the mountains of Nepal live in a yurt sign me up I'm in I'll go it didn't happen um, but over a course of just step by step not always understanding but doing my best that I knew to follow the spirit and follow the word of the Lord um, I ended up in South Asia about three and a half years ago um, where I've been working with in rural villages raising up like rural leaders to go and plant churches and in their villages, each of them plants three villages, they leave behind everything, they're incredible, I mean, the way they come to know the Lord has transformed who I am, I mean, just a quick story, like, there was one guy who I met who went on to plant three churches, who, like, heard the gospel, because he was, like, walking through his village one day, and there was a calendar store, they use calendars in rural Asia, believe it or not, and he had heard, the gospel was on one of these calendars, and he read the gospel, and he was, like, I have many gods, but Jesus, if you are the one true God, then heal me. He had been walking with a limp, he had a leg problem. So he lays down on bed, prays that prayer, wakes up miraculously healed completely, could walk normally, realizes that Jesus is the one true God, finds a missionary that lives three villages away and starts interning under him and learning about the gospel, becomes a missionary himself and plants three churches. So just like stuff like that was like normal. Um, Well,
1: what are you doing now (laughs) when you go back? You are down here in San Diego during COVID. You're going back to South Asia. With a view to do what?
2: Yeah, so when I met Chris and you guys, some of you have met Rachel, my friend Rachel there. She's also there. Um, The Lord really began to stir my heart to realize that no one was reaching the upper middle class in my city. So I was spending about 70% of my time in the city and realized there's no like, The gospel's all in the rural areas, and it's, like, exploding, but it's staying there. And nobody's reaching these urban, like, creative, educated people that you and I would sit and have a latte with, like, at any of our coffee shops, you know? And really began to open my eyes to see that there was more to that nation, my nation that I was in that I didn't realize. And so through a lot of, like, just prayer, the Lord really began to open my heart to the idea of planning a church in my city um, and even expanding that to what does it look like to continue to raise up leaders to plant more like family churches um, around the nation so
1: around the table
2: around the table All right you
1: said you had one more funny story
2: yeah this lady i'll say it fast this lady came to know jesus because her buffalo came back to her <laughs> yeah they had like prayed for her and the buffalo so it's wouldn't like come a back christian buffalo yeah <laughs> yeah and so it was like her livelihood and so this missionary prays for her buffalo. He comes back and she's like, dang, Jesus is good. And she started following him. So I just think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wonderful. Maria, we're so delighted you're here. You, and Maria's yeah. teaching tonight in San Diego for the first time, at least on a Sunday. I mean, I love the story. I love Maria. I love um, just watching God do, without any offense to Maria, just do wonderful things with ordinary people. And uh, that's really a major part of who we are and what we're about. We are not here to do a Sunday gathering excellently. We really are here to ensure that um, we mobilize people for the great Jesus gospel adventures. So what are we doing today? I'm very aware it's hot, so I'm going to preach both quickly and briefly. Um, When we started three years ago in in our home, Merrill, my home, We, like every church planter, said, what are the core values? What are the things that we're going to build this community around? And we landed very quickly around four ideas. The one was the dining room table, because it crosses generations, it crosses ages, cultures, it crosses language groups. It is relevant and appropriate to everyone. Um, It's also true that we see it throughout the text, and Dana's going to be talking about that in a week or two's time. We also said worship, because we want to encounter the Lord. Worship is not... Traditional singing of songs to feel that part of our liturgy is fulfilled. We want to encounter Him. Thank you for leading worshiping in a space like this. We couldn't show the words because it's too light. And so we had to lean on each other and lean into those who didn't know the words or those who were enthusiastic and passionate so that we could encounter the Lord. Thirdly, prayers, because we want everyone to play. You know, I've been doing this a long time. And the longer I do it, the less compelled I am. But Christianity is about three or four people who know how to do a Sunday well. And more and more, it's about all of us on assignment doing what it is God's called us to, like Shannon, like Maria, like Sam. And um, then we landed on this idea of storytelling. Why, you might ask? Well, for me, storytelling is very simple in that, number one, the story of God and my microphones coming in and out. more anointed than mine. So the, the scriptures, the story of God, this beautiful meta narrative, right throughout all of time, from the beginning till the end of the story of God, lived out through the story of people. And what I want to say, and that's why it worked out so beautifully that Maria was here, is that every one of our stories matter. Turn to the person next to you, if you don't mind, and just say, your story matters, my story matters. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be this. We, we we did a thing at Southlands many years ago called the Scarlet Letter or the Scarlet Story or something. Love, do you remember? Anyway, and it was about seven or eight people. We we had a filmmaker in the church, and he made these short documentaries on people's lives. And the one was a gangbanger who got shot. Uh, his cousin was in prison. And he got word that they are out to get you and bravo, bravado, you know, that won't happen to me. They won't get me. And he was walking and he actually filmed it at the place where he got shot. And he said he was walking and a car drove past slowly, called out his name. He didn't acknowledge his name. And a gunman got out, shot him, uh, shot him in the guts. And um, he uh took forever to send someone out to him. And it's an amazing story which led to his conversion. Now, you and I think, well, we better have one like that. That's like a cool one to have. Or one of the other girls that got date-raped as a 16-year-old, actually by the football team, Uh, her parents had had gated her, said she's not allowed to go out. She went out anyway and uh, got raped by a number of the football players, came home, told her dad, and her dad said, well, that's your fault because I told you not to go out. That was the comfort she got. Now, will you think, well, Chris, my story is not as dramatic as that. It doesn't have to be. It's just that stories matter. I had a big, a beautiful N.T. right quote here, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to use it. Remember the story of Jesus with a blind man he walks past the blind man with his disciples, and they say, well, who made him blind? Was it, was it him? Was it his sin? Was it his family's sin? You know, what was it? And he said, no, so that uh, my father may receive glory. He makes some mud, puts it on the blind man's eyes, and the blind man gets healed. Beautiful story, doesn't end there. The, um, uh, the Pharisees, the literalists the religionists call him over call his parents over and say listen we've heard really bad things like something happened on a sabbath and everyone knows you don't do things on the sabbath and they say well don't ask us petrified of not being politically correct not playing the party line they said look he's an adult ask him they call him over he is petrified intimidated by their presence in their line of questioning and he says this he says look I don't know. I can't answer all your questions. But this I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. And they said, no, 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 that's not enough. I said, no, once I was blind, now I see. Your story matters. We're not all going to be geologists who can describe the evolution of the world. Was it seven days? Was it millions of years? We're not going to be able to give answers to biological questions, philosophical questions. And sometimes I think we, we live under the pressure of being demeaned. Because we don't have all the answers. And how embarrassing is it that I can't answer the theological questions of, if God is sovereign, why does a baby get raped in Thailand about every few minutes? Well, I I can't answer that. I don't think you can either. I don't know how we can do all the cultural commentary on things that are prevalent right now. Woke. White privilege and fragility. Black Lives Matter. The political chaos and division that we see and we saw in Kenosha over the weekend, shout out for our Kenosha connection, the LBGDQ movement, we aren't experts in all of these things. Now, I'm not saying kiss our brains goodbye and have no intellectual reasoning. Yes, we grow, learn, and study as much as we are able to, but ladies and gentlemen, what cannot be taken away from us is our story. When I was prepping for this, I remember in 1994, I marched for the free Mandela thing. There was about 24,000 of us who marched. There were very few white people. In fact, our nation was in civil war. At the time, people were being killed on the streets on a daily basis. Riot fires, looting, burning, killing. Anyone who was suspected of being a traitor uh, within the black community was pulled aside. A tire was put over them. They were filled with petroleum, with gas, and then they were set on, on fire on the street corners to indicate that if you if you in any way partner with a white man that's what's going to happen to you it was a brutal time in South Africa's history I had been an officer in the South African defense force I knew what riot control was I knew what happens if things go pear-shaped and Meryl said to me babe are you sure are you sure you want to go and I said one day my kids will ask me dad what did you do against that dastardly system called apartheid, and I have to give them an answer. And we did many things, but this was one I knew I had to do. And I went to Merrill's dad, who was very nervous, very conservative, beautiful man, treat him as my father. And I said, Ken, I will do my best to stay safe, but I'm asking you to make sure Merrill and the girls are safe. I went to the leaders in the church. I said, brothers, this is what I feel like God wants me to do. A number of them said, we're coming with you. I remember sitting at home making a big sign saying pastor against apartheid. I put on a tie, never wore a tie, but I put on a tie because I wanted to make it clear that it's not just a bunch of angry, rebellious, negative people, but actually we cannot stand by and watch a sin of deep and profound sociological implications to go unchallenged. I remember not joining the multi-faith prayer meeting because my my conviction wouldn't allow me to but I remember standing with my friends outside the church where it was and as the leaders Bishop Tutu and all of them came out we jumped in early and you know if you've watched any African protest you will know that they toy toy it's not a march it's like a dance and they sing their freedom songs and I remember dancing to the best that my little white body could follow and imitate with them And I remember behind me was the socialist flag and in front of me was the communist flag. And I remember singing in tongues at the top of my voice because I was absolutely petrified. I knew if this went bad, the guns will blaze. I remember watching those security police dogs. And I kept staying on the edge of the road because if things went pear-shaped, we had to duck and we had to get out quickly. You see, I don't have all the answers on racial issues, but I do know that when the Spirit of God leads you, you respond and you do things you might, under different circumstances, not do. I might not have the argument for every politically correct conversation, but I can tell you what we've done. I can tell you that the South African FBI equivalent started visiting our church. I can tell you that they came to see me and told me that they were watching us and listening to our messages. I can tell you, that I was due to get promoted in the military and they didn't promote me because of my marching. You see, everyone's story matters. Your history. The thing with Paul's history that I find so incredibly amazing is he's unapologetic about telling it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was schooled and educated by the best. He was a religionist, a literalist. And he, like today, was given to violence he wanted people killed or imprisoned or beaten up because of their profound departure from the perceived socio-political religious truth of the day. Now, what I want to say in that regard, dear friend, is this. Your history matters. Please don't feel like your history is somehow insipid. I cannot tell you how often my history leaked into a message or into a counseling session or into a conversation. It's just the right story at the right moment to see someone touched as God uses my story and yours. You may say, well, Chris, actually, I was just a nice little pleasant middle-class kid from a, from a white middle-class neighborhood, and, and, and I tried my best never to be naughty, and, and I never slept around, and I never did drugs. And you say, well, uh, what kind of insipid story is that? It is a powerful story. It is a beautiful God story, how God was able to keep you in His grace. Ask anyone who lived a promiscuous life if they really wanted that. And I would hazard a guess 90% would say definitely not. I wouldn't wish that seemingly amazing lifestyle on anyone because you end up feeling abused, misused, used only for pleasurable purposes, not for any sense of true love, covenant, and partnership. Your history matters. I don't want to talk much about that, but I do want that to linger just for a little bit secondly your conversion story matters just think about it for a moment what is your conversion moment for Paul it was a sublime moment on the road to Damascus what happened to him the presence of God came and struck him down my romantic imagination was he was galloping at full speed his animal ran into an angel he came flying off his donkey And landed on the ground, grazed, battered, bruised, and dirty, and the Spirit of God spoke to him. It probably was way less that way. And far more just a moment when the presence and glory of God came and he fell onto the ground. I'm a product of the 70s. The 70s was you get saved. That was what we did. We all sang it. Larry Norman, Barry Maguire, second chapter of Acts. We all declared it. We used to ask each other, are you saved? But, but the Bible is far more beautiful and profound. There are some great stories right in there about justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Do you know what that truth did when it hit me like a, like a, a, a two-by-four on my forehead? Just as if I'd never sinned, that God takes my sin and separates it from me as far as the east is from the west. How could God take someone like me, and by His own act of kindness, separate my sin from me. Everything I did from when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, everything I did, He took that from me and separated me from that. Do you know how powerful and strong that truth is? Or expiation. I remember the day Meryl and I sat with a girl, beautiful virgin, from our community in South Africa. She'd gone out with a friend, a guy, thought nothing of inviting him back, and he date raped her. Devastated, she'd kept herself for her husband. And now I sit with a girl, and I do not know what to say to her except this. Expiation is that beautiful gospel notion where God forgives me not just for my sin, but the sins that others have committed against me. And we sat with her as she wept, Meryl wept, leading her to a place of forgiving the friend who raped her see your moment of conversion matters now satan will seek to silence your story forgive the alliteration but it actually is pretty cool satan will seek to silence your story oh your story is nothing doesn't matter it's just a wussy story oh it's not it is the most exquisite story or you'll say you know what yeah but look out look how sinful you still are one day when you are without sin then you can tell your story. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It is a beautiful evolution, a development of my salvation. And en route, I can tell the story of salvation. Does that make sense to you? So it's not only my history that has power and weight. It's not only my point of conversion and all the beautiful Bible stories in there. But it's, remember the two questions That Paul asks, who are you, Lord, and what do you require of me? Who are you? What do you require of me? Well, that leads me to number three. Your story is not just your history. It's not just your conversion point. It's also your calling. A couple of things about that. Thank you for being so gracious. I'm trying my best to value the text, but also be quick. You know, he says in this passage, That uh, before, that God called me from my mother's womb. Do you know why I hate abortion? I'm not a right-wing radical fanatic. I find both wings incredibly unpleasurable, destructive, ungodly, unbiblical. It's not the size, the side that is either extreme is contrary to the very presence and the power of God. But it's because when God forms us in our mother's womb, He seeds us with calling. That's what my Bible says over and over again. There is a calling wrapped in a DNA. When God looked at my mom, who was an uneducated woman, didn't finish high school, He put me inside there and He wrapped my DNA into that calling. We can't just go around ripping callings out of a woman's womb and we call it choice. Calling, seated in a woman's womb, wrapping it in a DNA, wonderfully wrapped in a DNA. And Paul then goes through this incredible discovery. I read all three occasions he, he writes his calling in the text. And this is the one that is mentioned first. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument. This is to Ananias. He is a chosen instrument of mine. Go and tell Paul this. He will carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I mean, if, if, the, if the prophecy stopped there, I'm like, Paul, can I have your prophecy? This is the coolest one ever. You're going to go before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. This sounds a super cool calling. And then he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. My storing will have a suffering component as will yours please don't be surprised please don't be disorientated suffering is part of our story and our management of suffering is a beautiful part of empowering others in their story all right I've got two more things I will be super quick with them the first is that sense of my history my conversion my calling fourthly Arabia you know what's interesting Paul, in the text that Meryl read, went to Arabia for three years. And it's mystified theologians. Why on earth would he go to Arabia for three years? So some theologians say, well, he went to preach the gospel. there." They don't say that. N.T. Wright, who's, of course, cleverer than all of us put together, said, no, 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 no. Actually, he is mirroring what happened to Elijah. Elijah went to Mount Sinai. He went there and he got a new commission from God to go and announce the new prophets and the new king says N.T. Wright, that's what happened to Paul. Maybe. Can I whisper to you the true truth? Can I tell you what actually happened? I'm joking, of course. But I'll share my knowledge with N.T. Wright sometime. You know what I think happened? I think he had to go to unlearn to learn. I think in loneliness, he went to a desert area, without friends and family around, taking everything he had learned and been convinced by and killed people for it's God said come Paul I need to take and deconstruct you I need to I need to open you up and I need to take all that gumph, the elitism I have studied under Gamaliel the arrogance I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees the opinionated notion of I can tell you where you're wrong and I will show you where I'm right the law I know the law inside and out And I suspect, dear friends, that actually what happened is God took him aside, deconstructed him, and reconstructed him. Why? Because you and I have been there. Where's your Arabia? When was that time where no matter what you did, you felt lonely? You felt disconnected from people? You felt out of touch with people? Like no one cared, no one knew, no one remembered, no one invited you anywhere? Have you been there? I sat with Tian the other day, my 21-year-old son, for those of you who don't know, is at Point Loma, and he's got a job at Home Depot in Point Loma. So you cannot believe how funny it was that w- Meryl had a therapy thing she had to go and do down there, and so um, I'm sitting in the parking lot of Home Depot, in my beach chair, he's sitting in the trunk of the Passat, we're eating burritos, and it's crazy, I mean, we just looked at each other and laughed, never in a million years did we think, I mean, If it was some other place like Seed or Urban Outfitters or some, the lab or the the camp, I mean, that would have been a cool place to sit in the parking lot like, yo, what's up, you know? And yeah, you see all these contractors coming past with their dirty boots and we're, we're sitting there and his hair's hanging down. It was such a crazy scene. But I tell that story to say this because somehow in the conversation, I told him about my deep loneliness when I first got saved. See, I came from a rugby-playing, soccer-playing, partying fraternity. That's where I came from. I didn't do drugs because I wanted to be the fittest on the team, but sport was my identity. And I remember coming to faith in this community, and no one would speak to me. I remember Saturday night particularly, I went up there at a coffee bar, which used to be an old nightclub. There was now a coffee bar and everyone was sitting there. The band was playing loudly and everyone was talking to each other. And they were all kind of inner city reprobates. They had done drugs and, uh, you know, prostitution. I mean, everything that was urban inner city that I wasn't. I was this suburban kid. And I remember just sitting there and eventually I couldn't take it. I just said, I don't belong here. I don't speak like they speak. I don't think like they think. And I drove up the hill to the university where I was still a student. And I went and had some beers with my friends. And I just felt kind Heavenly Father saying, son, really, is that what you want? And I said, I don't. But I'm too lonely up there. Too lonely. I have no friends. So that was my part of my Arabia. Where God had to detox me from my friends, from my worldview, and from my perception. Where's your Arabia? Tell your story. Just like I did. Just like the place went silent because many of you connected with that. Because it's part of Christianity that you and I like the least. We come into community and we've never felt as lonely. Yep. It's your Arabia and mine. Lastly. Oh, can I say this? Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's that time where we discover grace. It's that time. In the, in the Arabian Peninsula, where it's the desert, and it's lonely, and God's deconstructing, and I'm disorientated. I, I was thinking this morning, I was a pretty competent cricket player, and I know you have no idea what that means. But um, and as a 17-year-old, I played with national players. And I remember I just paid all the money I had to get myself a new cricket set, bat pads, gloves, the whole thing. You can think baseball for the sake of kit. And I just bought it myself. And I came to faith a few months later, and I felt the Spirit of God say, son, I want that. See, my identity was my sports performance. It's the only way I knew. That's how I related to people. And God said, come, I want it. And I took my kit back, all my brand new stuff, and I gave it to my brother who was five years younger than me. And I said, boy, it's all yours. And he looked at me, and his eyes were this big. And my dad said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, Dad, God wants me to give this up. And he said, your God who gave you the talent would never ask you to give it up. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry, but he has. And my relationship with my dad drifted for a number of years. See, that was my Arabia. My identity was taken. What and who I was before, I no longer was. And it was a very, very painful three years for me. Does it make sense? It's horrible. I can't even paint it beautifully. I can't even say, wow, look forward to your trip to Arabia. First class, you know. You can get a discount and get into a five-star hotel. I can't even try to beautify it because it's the most lonely, painful, dastardly tough experience. But it's in that time we learn about grace. It's in that time that we learn is grace is sufficient for us. And then lastly, thank you for being so kind. Our story includes our history. Our story includes our conversion. Our story includes our calling and sense of meaning and destiny. Our calling includes Arabia. And our, uh, sorry, our story includes those first steps. Isn't that beautiful? Here is the man whose teachings transformed 2,000 years of global history. Isn't that amazing? He was a short man, they tell us. Quite an ugly man. Nose, round nose, big nose receding hairline very uncompelling speaker well we know that people fall asleep while he preached well I think anyone would preaching through the night but he just carried on raised the guy come said come sit down there give him a coffee we're carrying on till the dawn wasn't a very compelling man or so we led to believe historians right but dear friends he changed the way the western world thinks it's a remarkable story okay Let me land with this. First steps, what did he do? He went to Damascus where he first got saved. And then he went to Jerusalem to say, guys, am I weird here? This is what I believe I've learned about the gospel. Is that true? This is what I believed about the Holy Spirit. Is that true? This is what I believed about church. Is that true? And he met with Cephas, Peter, and James, Jesus' biological brother. And they gave him the thumbs up and they said, Yes, you got it, buddy. The first steps is to engage in community and make sure we're on the right track. Your story matters. Your drama is for someone else's empowerment. What you go through. I've often thought, G. Merrill and I, not often on this point, but it has happened on occasion, I've scratchy with each other. And then I feel like the Spirit of God is saying, It's okay, it's not for you. Someone's watching your marriage. This isn't about you. This isn't about you and Meryl. This is about someone watching that needs to see how a godly couple can do a marriage together. Sometimes it feels like, my goodness, the finances, the fridge is breaking down. The car needs new tires. And you're thinking, God, why is it all happening in the same time? And in my heart, I feel like there's a set of eyes. Someone is watching. How does Chris do his finances? Okay, God, I got it. I'm sorry, I got it. Your story matters and someone else your gospel is someone else's redemption I can't tell you how many times around the world thank you for being so gracious I've told my story I was sitting with someone this week and just told them about being bullied it's difficult to explain in in California except that I was an Afrikaner which is redneck in an English school they used to draw diagrams about me and tease me and laugh at me And that's where I thought I'm going to cuss the loudest and I'm going to be the best rugby player in the school in spite of being so small. I thought to hell with you. You're not going to get me down. But you see, my bullying experience, I think, helped them cope with theirs. Did I like it as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old? Hated it. Made me an angry, bitter kid. But I will get up somewhere in the world. I remember preaching in Canada and I spoke about this story and a man came to me in tears. He was an Afrikaner living in Canada and he just wept before me as God ministered to him. My story, silly little story, but God used it in their lives. Your story matters. Dana is going to lead us in some communion. And uh, we always eat together. And we can't today for all the obvious reasons, but we can come around the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't got, Sam has got some, um, and uh, she can get some goodies around and about.